Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, who's currently yawning as I say this, so I'm <laughs> stretch it out a tiny bit. Aaron, Aaron how are you doing? Say hi. I'm doing all right, thanks. I've been a bit under the weather this week. Um, ah, makes two of a us a bit under the weather. I've been quite a bit under the weather, actually. But <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you might be able to hear them a little bit nasally, not too much though. Now, um, just very, 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 very tired. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think no, that makes I'm two good. of us. Yeah. What have you been up to? Um. Well, actually, Other than being sick. I was going to say, apart <laughs> from not not feeling very well. Um. In fact. Maybe because of not feeling very well, I've not actually got to much. I have managed. Weirdly, everything revolves around spiders this week. Um, so yeah, I've good. got an orb weaver, uh, in my kitchen, and I love watching her because, uh, firstly, very beautiful spider. Secondly, they're nocturnal, so it's really interesting watching her because you see, during the day, she's got a stunning web, right? A really nicely formed web, um, which we've not done anything in any way shape or form. when i had to clean the windowsill the other day i was so careful about it to make sure i didn't even touch a strand uh so during the day she hides up in the blinds but her web is on full display obviously and then round just just before kind of sundown she comes down to the center of the thing she just she just sits and waits there and she's looking pretty chunky so she must be feeding uh pretty well Ooh. Which is good. So that's the first spidery thing. I can see her from where I'm. I'm on the listeners won't get this, but Gareth might see keep seeing me uh, looking off to my over my left shoulder. And it's You're because, in your kitchen, yeah. Yeah, I can see her from here. Um, just a really nice sight. Uh, the second thing is obviously not being well. I've had more time on my hands to not do anything. So I've not gone out and done any wildlife watching. I have been playing a lot of that uh, PS4. Spider-Man game, which is <laughs> such an incredible game. I mean, that that is really quite something else. Um, and the other thing is, there's a a spider. Uh, there was a spider off going in the down going down in the downstairs toilet the other day, in which you know the the house spiders, the the shed spiders in the UK, quite a big brown spider. Yeah, yeah, Ertigina uh, de- uh, domestica. Yeah, yes. I need to put this video up because I got a video of it, right? It got caught in another spider's web. A much uh, smaller, much would it be smaller a cellar spider? spider. I think so, but I'm not sure. I'm gonna have to send you the video first so that you can help me ID that second spider. I was gonna say cellar um, spiders are spider killing specialists there. They, oh they can basically my God. stretch around and bite the legs on on the bigger spider. We have a we have a full um ecosystem going on in here we're just nice. missing something from from the spider eating spiders to the cat we're missing like a couple something to eat the cat no something to uh something that keeps the spider eating spiders in check and then the cat keeps that in check um okay <laughs> yeah um but no it was really fascinating to watch whilst i was uh doing a poo um this uh, <laughs> too much information, maybe. Far too much. Answers to it. That's how I noticed it. There's just this kind of like like a flurry of movement, and then I saw that actually this spider just crawled onto someone else's web, and then that someone else just came charging down like a bat out of hell, but with eight legs <laughs> instead of two wings. 
and was upon this spider. And I like I saw the bite and I was like, I got I gotta get this, I gotta get the camera out. I'm right, camera. <laughs> the, uh, got my phone out of my up my pocket that was, you know, you, you know, when you when you're doing when you're doing your when nature calls, your trousers are down by your ankles. So you're like generally yeah. to get it out of your struggling to get the phone out of your pocket and then but the fingers like dropping it and then and then finally recorded something. So uh, I will put that up. There is no, there is no, um, there's no poo footage. So don't worry. It's just, it's <laughs> you know what? That, that's just made me think. The spiders. That's just made me think. If if that had happened years ago, for listeners under a certain age, we didn't used to have mobile phones. If that had happened years ago when you were a kid sitting there, that would have been the ultimate entertainment whilst going to the toilet. Because the rest of the time it was reading the ingredients on a shampoo bottle or. Yeah. You know, <laughs> If you were, if if somebody had been particularly generous, they'd left a whole bunch of magazines or something. But yeah, watching a spider death battle that would have been like, oh, that would cool. I went, amazing. I went into Atta was watching TV in the living room, and I went into it and I just, I, I just, I went, I just saw Miles Morales kicking the everlasting life out of Peter Parker in there. <laughs> Peter Parker being the big one. I say that because Peter Parker is obviously the bigger one than Miles Morales, and the only way that Miles Morales is going to beat Peter Parker is if Peter Parker's got like you know got the symbiote suit and he's all amped up on rage and not thinking straight. <laughs> You didn't I, had a whole, to... I had a whole Spider-Verse kind of narrative right. going on for this. I didn't narrate, I should have narrated the video, but I didn't. You didn't think to like play some music whilst this was happening, like Jewel of Fates or something. Jewel of Fates. <laughs> Spider-Man, Spider-Man. <laughs> something anymore something nice and dramatic whilst they're, whilst they're attacking each other. Yeah, well, mm. there you go, listeners. God, that was a bottle exploding. Try to get... Well, there you go, listeners. Uh, look forward to um, Aaron's uh, exp- <laughs> expedition to the toilets um, to uh, to film the local wildlife, which doesn't sound at all a bit dodgy. Um, <laughs> but fair enough, you know that's 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 a pretty good uh, thing to have spotted. I've got to admit, I've not done a giant amount this week. Um, in fact, well, well, the only sort of real animal-based thing that I've had uh, going on, other than obviously teaching students about um, all the all the fun of the natural world, but I got to do binomial nomenclature the other day and Linnaean nomenclature, oh, yeah. which most of them look uh, absolutely. There was what 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 are you going on about? For Come most on, of kids, it. And there's then, ancient Greek in it. This, that makes it. Well, no, no. I, I then made it relevant. I went okay. Does anyone know what this fly is? And I, I put up the picture of the um, the the type of fly. It's a a robber fly from Australia. No, a horse oh, yeah. fly from Australia called um, something something Beyonce because it's got a gold ring on it. And oh right. This the weird thing was. <laughs> I don't know whether this says more about me or about the students, but when mentioning, well, this one is named after Beyonce, and they went. Why is that? And I went, because it's got a gold ring on it. And they went, I don't get it. And I went, her song where she talks about putting a ring on things. It's like, oh, geez. <laughs> I'm feeling, uh, I, yeah, you, okay. Anyway, so set them then the ability to go and look for all these different ones named after different people. And some of the most, some of the most interesting ones that they brought back were things that had just names in it that sounded like who. So yeah, they brought back. <laughs> Blackbird because it's got Turdus as the uh, 
And I went, but that's not what it means. Yeah, but it sounds funny. I went, yeah, but that's not the task <laughs> I set you. I said, find mm. ones that have got named after famous people or have come from situations that have got odd names. This, all, all of the Spider-Men actors have got spiders named after them. You know, That's right. I said, you'd be surprised by how many of them have got Hitler eye on the end. Mm-hmm. Somebody find out how many are named after David Attenborough, you know. Anyway, I digress. The only other animal-based thing <laughs> that I've been doing is playing host to a small felid. One that uh, you know the uh, or you have the ancestry of there in your house. So yeah. look, cat cat sitting for a for a friend. I've had to move all my house plants so that it doesn't get to them. So I don't <laughs> know how you manage to have house plants and a cat. So uh, fair play to you. <laughs> anyway, so before I go and dig myself a hole here, um, let's uh, head on into the news, shall we? Let's do it. Right, well, we're into this week's news. Aaron, take us out. What do we got? Well, every week we are inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad, and the extraordinary. So let's open up our Natural History Cupboard Newsreel, where we've compiled some of the more interesting headlines, and dive on in. Yes, and I'll start us off this week with, uh, from BBC, BBC. Baby beaver born in London for the first time in 400 years. Try and say that was. I didn't realize that until I started reading it. BBC, <laughs> baby beaver born. Anyway, <laughs> chances are uh, if you've seen a baby beaver before, oh my God, <laughs> it wasn't in London as they haven't set paw there in hundreds of years. That, that I've read that directly from the head of the article. Until recently, that is. Uh, it's thought that for the first time um, there has been a baby beaver born <laughs> in in the capital. Oh, God. The mammals became near extinct in Britain uh, because of their fur and, well, people just being horrible. Um, but it would appear that for the first time at Capel Manor College, uh, they plan to check the young beaver that was spotted in London to make sure it's healthy. It'll also confirm whether the rodent is male or female. Um, Meg Wilson, who is the college's animal collection manager, said that they are thrilled to hear about the new arrival and she hopes new data will provide further evidence about the positive effects that beavers are having on the environment. So we'll Wonderful. back away from the baby beaver being born in by the BBC. <laughs> There's a lot of alliteration in that uh, in that round. That, the that, only way that could headline. have been more more bees is if it was Brian Bradondi. <laughs> Um, heading on over to the smithsonian magazine online scientists collect first rna from an extinct tasmanian tiger Uh, a study published in the journal genome research reveals the breakthrough in which rna has been extracted from a thylacine specimen around 130 years old the accomplishment is a world's first both in terms of it belonging to a thylacine and in terms of it being the first successfully extracted RNA sample of an extinct species. And the the discovery pushes forward our understanding of thylacine biology, including how its cells functioned uh, metabolically in life. Hmm. So I'm going to steer far away from any bee-related animals now. In fact, most of the animals I've got are to do with um, Australia and New Zealand from this point on in. So uh, from ABC... 
um, news. We've got spotted tail quoll, thought extinct in South Australia, caught at Beachport after 130 years. Basically the same age as that. I was going to say, hang on. <laughs> so um, when farmer Pao Ling Sai set a trap to catch the predator that had been killing his chickens, he expected he would catch a feral cat or fox. Mm. But he, in fact, caught the spotted tail quoll, which was last documented in South Australia in the 1880s. The endangered species is a mainland uh, predator and is one of Australia's largest marsupial predators. Mr. Sai, a trout farmer from Beachport on South Australia's southeast coast, was was basically shocked, he said, to find the uh, the spotted quoll in his trap instead of a um, uh, instead of uh, a fox. The species is also known as a tiger quoll. Uh, I've actually worked with tiger quolls years ago, mm-hmm. and they're they're lovely things. Really, really pretty marsupial. I think they're very cool. Yeah, yeah. They're basically the marsupial answer to a small cat in a lot of ways. But um, yeah, so that is now well resetting what we know about quolls in in Australia. So it could be leading to some greater research. It reminds me quite a bit of the. Um, uh, pine marten that was found around London. Yep, on that random camera trap. So yeah, yeah. Oh, marsupials are very cool animals, aren't they? Mm. Um. Okay. And from Science Daily Online, we could sequester carbon dioxide by regreening arid lands. Plant scientists say, uh, as public awareness for the importance of cutting CO two emissions grows, so too do the number of ways in which we actually have to deal with it. We can't rely on merely cutting emissions. We have to find multiple ways of storing massive volumes of it that have already been spewed out into the atmosphere. And one such way, plant scientists argue, uh, in the journal Trends in Plant Science, published on September 21st, is to transform arid environments such as deserts into efficient carbon capturing environments. Uh, it's a really interesting article that I'd, I'm not going to dive too much into in this uh, in this quick roundup, but I really think you guys should read into it. So that's uh, that's at Science Daily Online. Hmm. That almost says to me that we shouldn't be doing things like that because it's already an ecosystem. There's probably yeah. more to it, like you say. There is more to it, read. and I—that's one of the reasons why I didn't want to go go into it too deeply because, uh, yeah, there's a lot to kind of consider. Very, yeah. very much worth reading it, though. I think I'll have a look at it in a minute. Um, so from ABC again, I've got uh, extinct Baru crocodile species named after Alacuta fossil bed discovery. So the impression shows that the Australian endemic crocodile might have uh, looked very similar to a modern-day saltwater crocodile, but a little bit beefier and chunkier. A species of prehistoric crocodile that once roamed the now arid landscape of central Australia has been named as Baru Iwalapeniae, which lived in central Australia around 8 million years ago. The fossils um, of the previously unnamed species have been found at the Alakuta fossil bed. Adam Yates, uh, who's one of the researchers, has said that there are a number of anatomical differences between it and its other members of the Baru genus. So pretty big, pretty funky looking croc. Hmm. Um, And fizz.org online. uh, This article is headlined, 
We carry DNA from extinct cousins like Neanderthals. Science is now revealing their genetic legacy. So uh, we may feel very separate from our closest cousins. We may even feel alone as humans on our planet, but these long dead peoples actually live on in us. Uh, go far enough back and Homo sapiens met and lived alongside other hominids, in some cases, even having children. Uh, and it's through these hybridizations that information stored in DNA has been inherited through the years down to us. Their legacy affects physical features, immune responses, fertility, and so much more. In fact, it even affected, uh, very recently, obviously, how our immune systems reacted to COVID-19. Hmm. Insert standard joke of knowing people who look a bit Neanderthal-like in <laughs> uh, in things. But um, so I've got something that would uh, would probably bring entire sections of the British train um, timetable to a halt, has been dealt with rather far more efficiently in New Zealand. Um, coming to us from um, iStuff at co.nz, uh, which is a obviously a stuff website in New Zealand. <laughs> uh, mother and baby seal held up Wellington trains, not with guns, held oh. it up, just, which would be hilarious. I was, I was wondering, do they have domino masks and six <laughs> shooters? <laughs> <laughs> On a Tuesday morning after wandering onto the tracks um, and said that at 11.30 services to Wellington and Upper Hutt between Wellington and P-Tone had been cancelled as a result. Commuters on the service were taken by bus instead until the seals had moved <laughs> off the track and normal services resumed. We've got <laughs> leaves on the track, which mean that we get trains cancelled. They've got seals on the track. Oh, mate, if a leaf falls on the on the track between, I don't know, Barnstable and Exeter, and Exeter, then yeah. the entire country's railway systems just close. <laughs> and then when they reopen, they're on strike. So... <laughs> I'm heading on over to Monga Bay Online. Uh, a rhino dust reserve in Nepal is set to get its first two rhino inhabitants. Now, I'm not 100% sure. I need to go back and check on this, but I think I actually, I think it was me that actually reported on these two rhinos uh, getting orphaned and raised uh, and being saved by this sanctuary, like in one of the Yeah, that sounds seasons. familiar. It's those two calves that are in this. So so the article is basically about two female greater one-horned rhinos, Pushpa and Anjali, will be translocated from Chitwan National Park, where they were raised after being orphaned, to Koshi Tapu Wildlife Reserve on September 27th. Um, the move is planned to coincide with World Tourism Day and is hoped uh, also that the move will boost both biodiversity and tourism in the area uh, which is a region that like i said currently has no rhinos it also incidentally has no tigers so um which i uh. mean that's normally in my books a bad thing but uh obviously in this case if they're trying to bring rhinos in and encourage their population then having yeah, tigers probably there already the is probably not such a good idea <laughs> but yeah give it a, give it a couple of years that's the um that that's that one. Very good news, I think, that one. And yeah, that about wraps it up for this week's newsreel instalment. Remember, if you guys at home have news articles and topics of interest that you think we should cover, send them in. As Louise O'Leary has done uh this week, she's been on fire with those news articles. So and so I'm gonna personally thank her for that because actually they're all really interesting to me and I'm gonna use them next week. Uh, <laughs> 
but yeah, if you want to follow in Louise's uh in Louise's example, uh, you can use any of the usual ways to contact us. So that's Facebook, Twitter, emails, whatever you like. Uh, and you might see your chosen topic or news article covered here or in the main topic discussion. And with that said, uh, Gareth, this week it's me um, who's got. I'd just like article. to say that if you want to send them in in unusual manners, that's also acceptable. We Pigeon, we do accept you know. didgeridoo, yeah, home in yeah. Uh, smoke signal smoke, smoke signals yeah um yeah skywriting um, whatever um, you want to go with we even have a non-existent uh myspace that was never set up and never existed <laughs> why, <laughs> why? Uh, we don't have a myspace i'm i'm does that even still exist as a thing i don't even know i don't know someone said myspace on some video i was watching today it's the first time i've heard the word myspace in i don't know i think the last time i heard myspace was actually before i was born and i'm 36 <laughs> i was there gandalf i was there <laughs> yeah myspace was around it was uh created around the time they f they tried to throw the ring in the first time uh but yeah we'll crack on um my article comes to us from fizz.org online and the headline is shading the great barrier reef from the sun might slow bleaching-induced coral decline. Uh, so, yeah, it sounds logistically difficult, and it certainly does seem like it is, but a glimmer of hope, perhaps, for our uh, our world's coral reefs, if, that, if this works. So um, we've all been following, obviously, with sadness and fear as the coral reefs of the world rapidly decline. The bleaching caused by abnormal and adverse weather patterns, malnutrition, excess sunlight, temperature, in uh, temperature increases, and of course, human-related foreign chemicals uh, is no more evident on the global scale than at the Great Barrier Reef. This reef has suffered one of the worst bleaching events during the 2016 to 2017 period in which 91% of the reef was bleached. Um, and these events, unfortunately, are becoming much worse with both the predicted regularity of such events and how damaging they are likely to be actually is looking to increase in the future. Uh, but whilst a myriad of approaches are being explored to better safeguard the reef uh, systems, one method in particular maybe worth investigating deeper a team of researchers in australia i tell you what a lot of our news has come out of australia this week yeah it's a very antipodean week it is um well this team of researchers from australia have been participating in the cooling and shading sub program of the reef restoration and adaptation program and they are examining the effect of shading on two coral species the study published in frontiers in marine science highly recommend uh, reading that when 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 you can uh it demonstrates that light stress and slow bleaching can be mitigated in controlled conditions via intermittent shading a process that involves a 30 percent drop in sunlight during four hours of solar noon the results show that the team were able to slow bleaching significantly uh, corals bleach when the water temperature goes beyond the maximum monthly mean water temperature by over one degree Celsius. The measurement for this is a degree heating week. The coral shows noticeable bleaching after surpassing four degree heating weeks. Now, whilst the shading experiment showed that intermittent shading delayed bleaching by uh, three degree heating weeks unfortunately different species showed different responses to the experiment and to the bleaching itself uh 
Whilst one species is as I described and could see its bleaching delayed by three uh, three degree heat three degree heat in weeks, the other species uh, collected and used in observations would plateau at this point. Um, so quite relatively different um, responses to this. But how do they plan to shade a reef in the field? Because obviously this was done in very big controlled hat. conditions. A big hat. You're not too far off, actually. Whilst, <laughs> it, whilst it presents logistical challenges, it's worth remembering just how vital uh, reef systems are uh, as an ecosystem on this planet. So the challenge is one worth exploring. Some methods uh, that are being suggested currently include artificial covers, like a giant hat, uh, <laughs> probably more like, you know, like a giant sheet or roof that can be expanded um, over it, uh, and seawater fogging. But more research and development needs to be carried out on the phenomena itself and the tech necessary to tackle it. Now, that is the article uh, in a nutshell. Um, it does offer a glimmer of hope, but it also offers obviously logistical challenges because it i mean i'm not too clued up on seawater fogging i'm pretty sure i can hazard a guess of, uh, as to what that is but an artificial cover over um you know it's gonna have to be anchored in sediment so you're gonna have to be very uh obviously the the um from a uh what's the word a construction uh point of view that's going to be difficult getting it into into sand i would would assume um like like building bridges but also the um you have to be very careful one thing i tell people who like to go diving is like when you're when you're down there and you're swimming among the reef and stuff really be careful not to not to like even lightly touch the coral with your flippers the slightest really? touch can damage them uh uh, and it doesn't take much to damage them irreversibly. So you got to be really careful when you're down there. So if you're going down there to, you know, anchor in like this uh, a post or, or upright or whatever that's going to be holding up this uh, this cover, um, I assume they're going to have to be very careful in the construction of, of this. Um, but like I say, it offers a glimmer of hope. The the I I don't know what the next step is for them taking it out of the lab and 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 uh, trying it out there. But it'd be interesting to follow it. Uh, Gareth, yeah. you you come from well, you come from a land I down come under. From the land down under. Is um, that where... <laughs> uh, you uh, you you've... you almost went into a song then. I did. I broke into a little sing song there. What what say you? <laughs> well. Where um, beer flows and bench under. <laughs> in the in the part of the land down under that I lived in, we we didn't there there wasn't coral reefs as such. No, you were you were beds. you were yeah. pretty far away from uh, the yeah, Great about Barrier as far reef. away. I've never seen the Great Barrier Reef. I've never but, even been to Queensland. So you were closer than I've ever been. So well, I mean, yes, technically from <laughs> geog uh, geographical terms, but it's still a, a world away from from that part of Australia. Mm. Um, no, I think this is good. If if it means the case of them literally going there and creating loads of like big umbrellas or something to cover it mm. to help it survive better, then so be it. You know, we're the ones that have messed this up. We need to try and fix it as best we can. And yeah. if that's a combination of physically shading areas uh, uh or doing some of these like rapid regrowth of, of the coral reef areas with like you know artificial bits and pieces then yeah we, we need to be 
fighting as much as we can to save this, just like we would if it was a rainforest. Not yeah. to say that there aren't people doing it, but yeah, that's yeah, that's quite good. Hmm. Right. Well, shall we head from the uh, the warm coastal waters of Australia um, inland a bit and uh, head to our creature feature, Mister? It's the creature feature. Right. Well, we're into this week's creature feature, and I want to start this week off in your average garden centre. Uh, amongst the potted perennials and various different flowers and seeds and, well, far too much indoor space that's been taken up by knick-knack and, uh, and just bric-a-brac and, you know, tins of sweets and the amount of garden centres I've been to and it's just been turned into all this useless tat. Anyway, it's probably a phenomenon that happens all over the world as well with garden centres. Far too much of it has been taken over to be indoor uh, stuff that's not then indoor plants. If it was all indoor plants, I'd love it. But anyway, I digress. Uh, you tend to find in one or two bits of the garden centre, there's usually a small area dedicated to the more bizarre plants that you see, mm-hmm. so yeah. architectural things. So this is basically where you'll find me if I'm not next to the indoor plants, the more bizarre looking things anyway. And it's it's stuff like architectural plants, like monkey puzzles and, well, ferns. Basically, they're often over overlooked as a garden plant because they don't have pretty flowers on them. But you often find underneath a bit of a sort of a shade cloth area in the back of these garden centers where these architectural plants are. You'll quite often find in a corner, in a pot with a very large price tag on it. This week's creature feature, Dixonia antarctica, otherwise known as the Tasmanian tree fern. Uh, you'll usually find them in either one of two states, one with the fronds on them or one without. And we'll get to why that is in a little bit later when we talk about their conservation. But, but we begin talking about this fantastic species of plant this week, not because I had, well, weirdly not put it at the the, the sort of pinnacle of ideas for this year. My My list of creatures for this year has been rather lacking in plants. In fact, it was our very own Drew that pointed out that we've not covered a plant this year at all. So I felt that I had to just drop what I was planning on doing and um, go straight for this uh, this fantastic species of plant, which I do absolutely love and have a few of them in my garden. So just like the Wallamai pine that we've covered uh, in the past, I was very happy to uh, to divert all of my attention to this wonderfully beautiful and ancient species. Now, those who know me will will know that I'm somewhat plant obsessed. And the plants that I like tend to be the ones that, like I say, are the weirder ones, the ones that people tend to find as rather dull or boring, um, mostly because they don't have pretty flowers. They tend to um, they tend to be more obscure and bizarre. You know, they, they, they're not your average pretty rose bush or something. I much prefer stuff that is just generally green in color, but lots yeah. of different types of greens. So... If you were to look at my garden, in fact, I will endeavor to get out there and, and try and put a video up um, just before I start going into winter mode of uh, how my garden looks, especially the sort of specimen plants that we've got in there, the wallamai and, and the monkey puzzle and, and things like that um, at some point. So I will endeavor to do that um, for our listeners. But when we're looking at... Tasmanian tree ferns, we could quite happily stay here in this hypothetical garden centre and go and spend a load of money in the indoor bit um, or go and sit in the cafe and probably have a cream tea or something and then have a massive debate with you, Aaron, 
as to which way it should go and, and all this, just purely because I know it annoys you. Uh, hence why I've included that in my uh, my script for this week as well. <laughs> the face he's currently pulling, listeners. <laughs> um, but to see this plant in its more natural habitat, we have to head south. Uh, we have to head a lot further south from uh, from Devon. We have to head all the way to Tasmania. Right the way down on the southern tip of Australia, you've got Tasmania itself. We've covered Tasmania at a few points over the years now. We've gone for the Tasmanian uh, tiger, the thylacine, the Tasmanian crayfish as well. In fact, where you would find the Tasmanian crayfish is these cold climate rainforests down in amongst valleys that are soaked by almost constant rain, uh, very much like here, where, where very dappled sunlight falls through the canopy to uh, be able to hit tree ferns down mm -hmm. in amongst these valleys. So the very same habitat that we would have looked at for the Tasmanian crayfish, uh, the, the giant crayfish, that's where we're looking for our fantastic tree ferns. So we're down in that same sort of, uh, that, that same area. To get an understanding of what the cold climate temperate woodland uh, rainforests of Tasmania are like, they are probably the same sort of rainfall uh, that we get in Devon throughout the winter, pretty much almost constant, and the same sort of temperatures where it can drop below freezing as well. You'll find mosses, liverworts, lichens, and fungi in this sort of habitat. And in fact, the actual number of species in these cool temperate rainforests actually forced a redefinition in 1980 to allow for the communities of plants that you find that did not meet the canopy requirements of the original temperate rainforest definition. So it was sort of bolted on. And that's, I suppose, when it comes to nature, one of those things that we always have to go, well, there's always an exception to the rule. We may call it this or try and put it into a box, but it doesn't always work. So the current definition states that cool temperate rain, uh, temperate rainforests are those with trees usually greater than eight meters, that's 26 feet in height, capable of regenerating in the absence of large scale catastrophic events such as fire. Uh, the forests are dominated in this particular part of Tasmania by a lot of different species of tree, including myrtle, uh, sorry, myrtle beech trees, sassafras. Uh, you've also got leatherwood as well as the King Billy Pine, the Huon Pine, and the Macquarie Pine. These are some of the larger trees that you find in this area. And the Celery Top Pine. Uh, the limited number of tree species, though, is thought to be due to um, repeated glacia uh, glaciation during the last ice age. So it basically meant that the species that are present in these areas in Tasmania haven't had enough time to re-diversify after the last ice age. So the species that you do have are, are, are that's it making this rainforest even more special because it is so minute in numbers of species anyway below this canopy uh, in essence it's a forest of high trees covering small valleys small streams flowing through these or going down into larger river uh, deltas and things uh, nice and damp the tree ferns are able to take advantage of this lovely shady dappled sun uh, as well as the cooler climates that these valleys uh, easily get um, throughout the year. Even during the summer, it may get hot, but there's still water there um, most of the time. And it's that little bit cooler. You all know, would or most of you would probably know that sort of feeling of 
stepping into a, a nice thick canopied sort of forest on a hot day and feeling almost that drop of one or two degrees in temperature as you go in past that sort of barrier of light. And it's exactly the same uh, with these guys. So that allows them to be able to live in in areas that otherwise could be uh, too hot for them, too dry. So let's meet the family, shall we? Now, when we say tree ferns, most of us are probably quite familiar with ferns. You'll find ferns everywhere. Um, Aaron, you you were talking to me earlier about you think you'd you'd found a tree fern that had been growing yeah, in the so. wild. There's more than likely, probably not around where you are, but it does happen. They do occasionally self-seed from older ones that have been brought into people's gardens. So ferns are everywhere. So it's very easy to get some of these confused. And in fact, the tree fern family is very, very large. And when we say tree ferns, there's soft tree ferns and rough tree ferns. Um, We're looking specifically at the soft tree ferns uh, and then even more specifically at one species, Dixonia antarctica, which is the most common found in nurseries all across the world, mostly because of its home range in Tasmania. Uh, It's also found in the same sort of cold climate rainforests of eastern Australia, so up uh, along Victoria and parts of New South Wales. But most of the ones that you would come across are from uh, from Tasmania. But the genus to which uh, these guys are in, uh, Dixonia, um, contains 20 to 25 species. And they're distributed from Mexico to Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, Chile, St. Helena, New Zealand, Caledonia, Australia, Indonesia, New Guinea, uh, and the Philippines. So they are a very widely distributed family of plants. And they all look relatively similar. You could probably put two or three of them together. And without being a botanist, you probably would struggle to tell them apart. I must admit that when I went to New Zealand, I thought it was the exact same species that I was seeing in the the forests there. Turns out that's what's called the woolly tree fern. It's its closest relative to Dixonia antarctica, but still a different species. Uh, Either way, very pretty tree fern. The Tasmanian tree fern was first described by Charles Louis Le Hertier de Bulletet. That's one hell of a nobility sort of name. Um, in 1788, uh, and the actual the name uh, Dixonia actually honours a Scottish uh, botanist and nurseryman, uh, James Dixon, who basically has now got the genus named after him. Quite a lucky bugger, if you ask me. Hmm. I'd love a well, I'd love a species named after me, let alone entire genus. So let's look at the life of a tree fern. To most of us, it's just brown stump, green leaves. That's pretty much it. But There are some things we need to understand about the plant kingdom here. I'm putting on my biology teacher hat for for a moment as we all sort of dive into the classroom, although you don't dive into a classroom, I suppose. Could do. Anyway, um, there there are two main types of plants in the plant kingdom. There are the angiosperms. Aaron, can you tell me what the other one is? Um, We spoke about this the other day with the... uh... The news, the news article that I brought up, but my memory <laughs> is failing me. Oh, you've got the look on your face like one of my students of like, oh, I don't oh yeah, I don't know. If you just like no, to hold know. up a can of Monster and then you know just sort of sit there on your <laughs> phone, it would it would basically fulfill the entire picture. Um, 
you have the angiosperms, which are the flowering plants. So majority of the plants that we are familiar with, they pollinate, you know, using bees, birds, all sorts of other uh, ways of getting around it. The other group are the gynosperms, and they reproduce using spores. So that's things like pine trees, which are a little bit more specialist in the way that they reproduce, and the ferns, uh, cycads, all of those sort of very primitive plants. These were the ones that were around long before the angiosperms, which first appeared in uh, in around the Cretaceous period, so quite a bit later in Earth's history. Whereas tree ferns, they've been doing their same thing for millions of years. So just a quick aside, actually, before we get on to how the plants reproduce, I, I did a bit of digging as well. I went um, down the route of what the uh, the root word for angiosperm and gynosperm are. So sort of a word of the week thrown in there, like you've done with so many of yours um, yeah. for the, uh, the last couple of weeks, Aaron. In fact, so much so that I was doing this just minutes before we started recording this. <laughs> um, so the, the word gynosperm uh, is Greek. And it means naked seed. And angiosperm means seed container or seed vessel, also from the Greek. So, uh, yeah, that's mm. where those two words come from. And it, um, it's yet again a, a case where the, the Greek version is different to the Latin version um, for meanings of those words. The way to, um, to see how a tree fern uh, reproduces, like many of the other types of fern, is to look on the underside of their leaves. Now, when they get to a certain size and age, ferns will go through an ability, uh, their, their point where they start producing spores. So look on the underside of a fern's leaf and you'll see quite often what looks like, like little dots. Uh, they can either be brown or black and they're usually quite fuzzy little circular dots. Some of them can be really elaborate looking on some species as well. Uh, but on a Tasmanian tree fern, they're sort of brown little circles. Now that's where all the spores come out. And you, you'll see that they just get released and float off in the air. So the spores will land on the forest floor. And in fact, the amount of light and phosphorus levels in the soil will determine whether the baby tree ferns get the chance to grow or not. And according to research from the University of Auckland, tree ferns release millions of these spores that drift around the, uh, the surrounding bush. And if they land on the right, uh, the right amount of soil with the right uh, phosphorus levels and light, they will uh, eventually germinate into small heart-shaped pl uh, plants known as prothalati. So the male sperm and female eggs are produced in these plants. This is the reproductive phase of these plants. Uh, and in the presence of moisture, the egg is fertilized and then grows into an adult fern. So it's sort of like them throwing off their reproductive parts to go and hopefully land next to each other to then be able to reproduce on the ground. They add an extra layer of complexity into reproducing, but it must work, you know, particularly well because, well, they've been doing it for millions of years. So they're de dependent on um, water for reproduction, basically limits the presence of these tree ferns to being in damp areas. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to spread their um, reproductive cells. And then with a little bit of luck and an awful lot of time, you'll end up with a tree fern that starts to grow, can sometimes easily get to be over six to seven, even like 10 feet tall. You and I, Aaron, have both seen some fairly decent-sized tree ferns planted here in the UK, um, all of which would have almost certainly come from Tasmania at some point in their existence. 
And some mm. of these older tree ferns, uh, well, do you want to take a, a a guess at the age limit to which tree ferns can can be? So say a, a, a seven foot tall tree fern, how, how old do you think that would be? You're not even going to give me an over and under. I used to give you and Drew over unders. I'm, I'm, I'll, um, I'll let you. I'll let you. You know, I'll, I'll give you within a certain <laughs> number of years. This is only an estimate, anyway. Okay, so seven foot, yeah. Yeah, call it seven foot. Uh, this is not good podcasting on my part. <laughs> We're going going silent for so long, but let's um say seven foot. Uh, let's go with roughly a hundred and uh, hundred and. I, okay, this is gonna be a this is gonna be a big uh, estimation. Okay, that's so, fine. So that's fine. It, 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 I know this is gonna sound vague, but I'm gonna go with about 130 to 150 years. You could you could very easily be right. Um, I have put down that it could easily be over 100 years of age, and okay. <laughs> yeah, you 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 would be somewhere and you know correct on that as well. And we'll get on to it later. That obviously transplanted ones. Um, mm. There will be a bit of a difference in their age estimation, but oh yeah, keep keep that in mind because I'll point that out as we go on. But yes, they can live for centuries, and in fact, there's not been any real study into the upper age limits of these uh, these plants. So some of these true giants could be centuries old, and we just don't know really. In fact, sometimes in the wild, when they start to uh, get a bit of a lean on them, especially in these yeah. these little valleys. They can start to topple over and eventually the whole thing will crash down. And well, you end up thinking the, the plant would then die. But in fact, because the trunk is effectively all root system, it is dead on the outside. It is just excess matter built up by the plant over the centuries. If you think of the way that shark's teeth continuously put new ones out, and especially some some of the sharks like Helicoprion, which had that big tooth whirl, Think of tree ferns when they start growing and you've got the little new shoots, which are called uh, crosmeres. They they come out at the top and unfurl and then you end up with that nice big frond as it comes down. Then as the frond gets older, it starts to fall down and eventually the whole thing will collapse in onto the side of the trunk and the tree, uh, the, the actual fern leaf will rot away and you'll be left with just the stump bits attached to it. So eventually you end up with this almost continuous conveyor belt of fronds coming out and being produced and going down all of that rotting organic material then helps to fertilize the tree fern that a little bit more in fact these guys mm. live on a very nutrient poor soil so any any bit like that will help so eventually given enough time that tree fern that might have fallen over and be lying on its side will eventually start to grow and and start to continue upwards so you can end up with one that's almost at a right angle reaching for the sun Interesting uh, little bit for you there. The uh, the croziers, uh, as I was saying, their word, uh, another word of the week for you, comes from the fact that they look like a shepherd's crook. You know, the sort of bishop's crook is is called a, cro a crozier as well. So don't tend to see too many shepherds with those sort of no. crooks. It's, it's more bishops that you tend to see with them. So anyway, that's evidently where that comes from. Their, their whole sort of nutrient basis comes from uh, them using decaying plant material on the forest floors, anything that might fall into the crown, which is the only living part of the tree fern, is the crown. The rest of it is pretty much just dead material below it, but still of use, obviously keeps the whole thing up. And there are roots in there as well. You know, you might get 
bird poo collecting in there maybe, but that's about it. So they, they can live on very little nutrients in quite acidic soil, which mm. is the same for a lot of mountain slope living plants. Think the Himalayas. So cultural uses. We're going to get on to how they're used in the garden. But for thousands of years, these tree ferns, as well as other tree ferns all throughout their range, have been used for food. They're actually very high in, uh, in, in starch. And it would take an awful lot of preparation. I've had to cut through a trunk of one of these before. And it is a nightmare. With a, just a normal wood saw, it just completely binds up the teeth on it. And even using a proper sort of garden bow saw sort of thing, it really is a, it's a hefty bit of work to get through. And especially one of them that I'd had brought to me to try and cut the, the trunk up to try and use it for for sort of backing in reptile enclosures, it just wasn't going to happen. What I wanted to do was to cut it down the center and then mount it onto some board at the back, but there's just no way that was ever going to happen. It's that hard to cut through. So all of those people for thousands of years using it for for starch, just the, the living part at the top of the, the tree fern, that would have taken quite a bit of effort to get to. You've got to think that's got to be you know, it's, it's got to be worth it to be able to eat it and to not exert so much energy that getting it nullifies its effects. So, mm. um, yeah. And that's not just the, the Aborigines of Australia, uh, but you also had the Maori of New Zealand and various other parts of Polynesia where these tree ferns are found. So they have formed the, part, uh, the basis for an awful lot of cultures' food. And the, the leaves are quite useful as bedding and... Uh, and various other uses like that. In fact, a lot of the Maori used the actual trunks uh, as as logs to to make um, you know walls and things out of like very old traditional huts and and things like that. Hmm. So we come back out of the forest. We are now back in the garden centre. You can go and get <laughs> yourself a cream tea, Aaron. It's fine. I'll be over here by the tree ferns. Um, but Tasmanian tree ferns have long played a, a sort of historical part in UK gardens. In fact, they were originally used as ballast in ships coming back from Australia and from New Zealand. So wow. essentially what you've got is people transporting these logs all the way back from the other side of the world. And where do you think that they were mostly um, stopping off a lot of these ships? What part of the UK do you think that they were first arriving in? Well, it's going to be south south coast uk right yeah um well it's i mean yeah yes, like port, going to be south Portsmouth, they're not going to have gone via the north and... pole but yes no but what i mean it's another <laughs> another famous kind of kind of area for for ships going to is liverpool isn't it yes um northwest but essentially devon and cornwall and the isles are silly um, oh, okay. And that's in fact where you'll find that these are a real stronghold here in in UK gardens. It's also why we have some Australian species of flatworm, which are actually quite a disaster to our native species. It's also why we've got a few species of Australian and New Zealand stick insects living here in the UK, and a couple of species of of plant that grow now feral from New Zealand as well. We have. Um, essentially planted these in the ground ever since people have been going off to Australia. So in the Southwest, Devon and Cornwall, we've actually got some of the, the best sort of situations for these, uh, these plants, shaded valleys, 
quite steep valleys. It rains here an awful lot, something we're not short on. Um, and even our summers are somewhat compar- uh, comparable to parts of Tasmania as well. So basically, they grow really well. You and I have both seen places where Tasmanian tree ferns have been planted in the UK, and they are growing in almost identical habitat to what they would grow in in the wild, to the point where mm. they they are thriving. It's it's really nice to see. And um, I, I just love being up close to things like that in that sort of habitat, which is it's really nice. So we have the same boggy, wet conditions of valleys and plants growing over them to give them the canopy shade that they need. Uh, even up in parts of Scotland, they grow relatively well. So you will see them up and down the country. They're they're quite expensive to buy, obviously some of the larger ones. But yeah, you'd be able to uh, to grow them relatively well in the UK. Um, so if you're lucky enough, like I am, to have one of these absolutely lovely uh, tree ferns in their garden, and I, I feel most uh, incredibly lucky to have uh, this, they are a species that can be transplanted. And this is what has made them such uh, an easy plant to sort of transplant everywhere. So you have these ships bringing these logged tree ferns back with them. And Hmm. you can actually just plant the entire thing in the ground and let it go. And that's because their almost entire trunk is made up of root. So they were they were just chopped down and then put on uh, these these ships as ballast. And then repotted when they they got back here in the UK and rerouted. So they don't really send out roots like a normal tree, you know, uh, into like a big disc. They sort of have a bit of a a small ball at the end, if anything, just where the roots have come into the soil. But most of it is 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 nothing. There's there's very little to it other than that. But if you are um, someone that's thinking of getting one of these tree ferns and you were to transplant one, for instance. It does happen. I've seen them for sale. Or you were to go to the uh, the garden center and buy one as one of these logs. The biggest thing you need to remember is that you need to have at least 60 centimeters worth of the trunk below the ground to not so much give it roots, but to anchor it. Because without that, it'll just topple over. And Mm. I've seen a few times where people have put them in and not put any depth below the soil because they you you want the majority of it above the ground you want it to look yeah. tall and impressive they take hundreds of years to grow so you you either want to spend a lot of money early on or you either want to plant it properly you know and and let it grow and keep it as a real sort of piece of pride um is, is the best way to look at it <clears throat> Hmm. I remember I asked you something similar because because uh, I had one. I imagined that I would be having to kind of have it closer to the surface than actually I did need it. Hmm. Well, thankfully, with the smaller ones, it's it's a bit more it's a bit easier. And yeah. that one was quite, quite small. But obviously, the larger they get, the more susceptible they are to being blown over in a pot in the wind, especially here in the UK, where our, win- uh, our winters get, well, quite windy unfortunately these guys can get affected by frost and things like that especially if they're out in the open fortunately i lost two of mine to frost when we had a particularly harsh one the beginning of this year so Mm. they they are a plant that needs a lot of love and care and at that point i well i i messed up basically they're at a point now 
where I'm looking at them, getting ready to bring them into the greenhouse, keep them all nicely tucked away for the, the winter. I'm fairly certain, you know, if, if it weren't for the fact that it might be a bit of a, an issue if I was to start bringing tree ferns into the house, I, I'd have them in the house over the winter. But I don't think I'd be allowed. <laughs> there may be words that would be have uh, had. Anyway, um, regardless of that, the the uh, the key sort of care parts for these plants uh, is that they get watered. Now, we've talked about the fact that they in the wild, they come from areas where their feet are constantly wet and it rains a lot. And even here in the UK, if they're outside, it rains a lot. Perfect for them. But if it's a hot part of the summer, you want to make sure that they are getting a good soaking. And unlike most plants where you would water around the base of the uh, the plant, because that's where the root system is, these guys don't need that. You're best off watering the crown, the, the top of the uh, the trunk where those little froziers uh, are going to come out um, because the rest of it is is all that sort of dead material on the outside. In fact, in hot weather, it can actually get so bad that they can become um, hydrophobic. So you can end up with going too long a period of time without watering them and you get the hose on there and you think you've watered it. All that's happened is the water's just beading off the trunk and uh, falling down to the ground you need to effectively just drip feed them uh water through this period and, and just soak them every now and again that's why i, I was going out every morning uh, and giving them a good good watering each to make sure that they um they had a good soaking before the day and of course keeping them in shade that's their their favorite sort of habitat is in shade so don't leave them out in the sun don't leave them in too hot a place you want to make sure that they, you know, they are as close to a wild habitat conditions as you can give them, and that's kind of what you're doing when it comes to gardening. Is you're, you're trying to make them into the same sort of situation as you would find them. Far too often, and I know you've seen this as well, Aaron. You would see these uh, trees be put out in the middle in a uh, in a, an area, and they're just sort of planted there, plonked there, watered, fed. Yes, but they slowly waste away, and you end up with just this stump. And you see it far too often in hotels and and pubs and restaurants where people have gone and put them there because they look nice. They're an architectural plant to most people. So you end up with them just dying. And then what's even worse is people just then throw the, uh, the stump away um, because obviously it's not living anymore. Some people have uh, transplanted baby ones onto the top of uh, full-grown adult ones, getting you this weird sort of look to it but it would eventually grow through it. I've actually got the stump of an old one that had died years and years ago from a very similar situation, but has got a tree that had grown up through it and had sprouted out the top. Now that then snapped in a, in a quite a violent storm. And um, I, I took it home because it was just going to be got rid of where it was planted it in the ground, hoping that the roots of the, tree that had grown or the, the the bush that had grown up through the center of it would actually take and lo and behold because it's quite a hardy species the uh the kapuka or um broad uh, new zealand broadleaf is the other name for it there you go i couldn't remember because they are thankfully quite tough and hardy plants that you can actually just snap a branch off and stick it in the ground and it will regenerate and grow it actually managed to do that. And it was the first thing I planted in my garden when we moved into this house. It was just this one 
dead tree fern stump that's about five foot tall with a kapuka growing out the top. And now it's absolutely massive. It's gained that extra height that it would have never had without that tree fern stump. It, uh, I've had people go, what on earth kind of plant is that? And I would go, well, technically it's two. It's one growing out of the corpse of the other, if you think about <laughs> it in terms like that. So anyway, so the final bit that I wanted to mention about the, this plant is their conservation. Uh, and because this species is everywhere, go into any garden center, I would I would say that you will almost certainly see one of them or could probably get them to, uh, if you asked, get a hold of one. Um, because they are heavily logged from the forests in Tasmania where, where they're native to, there's an awful lot of timber clearing that goes on in Tasmania. And thankfully, they are legally obtained. So they're not illegally being uh, logged without people's permission. And not to say that there aren't landowners in parts of Tasmania and parts of Australia that cut them down illegally and just get rid of them. Personally, how you could do that to one of these is is just criminal in my mind because of their, their slow growth rate and their specific requirements and being such an ancient plant as well. Um, but the ones that are legally taken from these logging areas, they're all tagged so you know where they've come from and that they definitely are legal, although tags can be faked. So, you know, it's a bit of a bit of a uh, catch-22 in some ways. The best way you could conserve these plants is obviously not buy them because the demand obviously will dictate the supply. Although saying that, in a lot of these areas where they are taken out, it's because the logging activity is already going on. So you're kind of trying, uh, you know, you're kind of helping, but not helping at the same time. Mm. It's uh, it's a real hard ethical question because they are going to be a finite resource. There will be a point where so many of them taken out of the wild will get to a tipping point. So we should really be thinking about them in the same sort of terms that we think about uh, wild animals being taken out from the wild. Yeah, if you're buying one, make sure it's got a tag that it's been, you know, responsibly sourced. And uh, that would mean that um, it's it's come from the correct places and gone through the correct procedures as well. They are a species that are really close to my heart. I, I absolutely love them. They give you that instant prehistoric look. It's because they are prehistoric. They're a group of plants that have been around for millions of years and ferns are something that get overlooked far too often because like i said before they are just deemed as the plants that grow you know off to the side somewhere you know just sort of yeah they're not pretty they're not out in front of everything most people would prefer a palm tree over a fern than uh, things like this but you know full well aaron that i i really like these these plants and these sort of uh, these more bizarre plants, but tree ferns, absolutely fantastic things and shouldn't be underestimated. If you are one of these people who, like me, has got one, nurture it, send us your pictures of it, show us show us that tree fern love, hmm. why not? But yeah. It's, uh, I, I, I do love tree ferns as well. I think they're great. Hmm. I think the more greenery and the, the more bizarre greenery you can have in a garden the better it doesn't always have to be flowers in fact i think i've got precisely three plants i've got out there because of their flowers <laughs> the rest of them are there 
because <laughs> they are they're either food for stick insects or some of the different insects that have kept over the years, or they're things like um ferns or or you know the the wallamy pine or and the the rare the very rare occasion is uh the brambles and the uh, sorry the thornless bra- the the thornless blackberries the gooseberries and raspberry canes but they uh, they don't have any flowers on them at the moment and even when they do they're not exactly grown for their flowers they're grown for the what comes after the flowers yeah so, yeah i'm very much green uh, you know, they they say it's not easy being green, but no, it is. Get yourself some ferns. <laughs> Shall we come out of this um garden center and head to the uh, the car park where we've got our uh, mailbag? Shall we? Absolutely, let's do it. What have you bought, by the way, on the way there? You you've got oh, you've got a birdhouse, a jigsaw of maps of roads of England, uh, a tin of sweets, and a shoddy quality scone. <laughs> that tastes half stale. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right, well, we're into our mailbag for this week, and we're going to start things off with the usual. Uh, the question that we set you guys uh, for last week, which was, what cryptid comes from your part of the world? And we got quite a few responses on this one. I think we've had some. we've had some fun. Uh, Lindsay hmm. Kinsella has put the fearsome Loch Ness monster, of course, most recent sighting below, and he's included a gif of. Um, oh, I saw this. Yeah, it made me laugh. It's a giraffe swimming yeah. in Loch Ness, <laughs> 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 which has uh, he's then had someone reply, Belinda. Uh, I'm uh, hoping they're not calling their other half a giraffe, perhaps. Louise O'Leary has put definitely Bigfoot here in the Pacific Northwest. The biggest thing I learned during COVID is that his name is Daryl. Only folks from the US who watch the watch the tube know this uh, relatively unknown fact. So there you go. Apparently Bigfoot is is um, known as Daryl. Um, yeah. Uh, so Randall <laughs> uh, Gadow has put y- y'all talking Bigfoot or honor them cray cray persons we got lots. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're, I think I we're talking Bigfoot. I didn't I understand the second part of that. I might be showing my ignorance here, but I didn't Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. Um so Nancy Ashmore has put Wisconsin has the the hodag. Uh so Karen uh, Stanley has put Chessie, the Chesapeake Bay monster, um very similar to Nessie. Phil Barber, Black Shuck and Shug Monkey in Cambridgeshire. I'm aware of Black Shuck. That's one of these devil dogs that uh, apparently, st- well, if you if you ever listened to the Darkness's song, Black Shuck, it says what happens. It strikes at the church house door and leaves uh, burning marks in the wood, which are apparently there to this day. <laughs> uh, my other half has put the Exmoor Beast, which would literally be what we'd have said. I think yeah. it's pretty much the only one from around this area. Um, Susan Abbott, uh, Ogo Pogo or British uh, from British Columbia, Canada, oh, which I believe is another too. river monster like um, Nessie. Karen Gowarecki, the Hodag, which we've had mentioned previously. Yeah. Can I jump in on that one? Yeah, go for it. So the Ogo, not the Ogo Pogo, that's because I've got the website uh, open on that one to figure that one out. Actually, just quickly, the Ogo Pogo is very, 
you know, water serpent dragon uh, Nessie esque, yeah. but the the hodag, that's some of the pictures of that are hilarious. But it's got quite a dark origin story. So the hodag was said to be born from the ashes of the cremated, abused oxen. It's the incarnation of the accumulation of abuse that the animal had suffered at the hands of its masters. Um, yeah, that's pretty dark. And I it like looks it. like, you know, like kind of like an ox crossed with like a oriental dragon crossed with a big cat with stegosaurus plates and uh and uh, and two massive bull horns it's it's and the quite, attitude to match <laughs> it's quite a comical looking thing considering how dark the origin is hmm fair enough um sebastian james booth has put the yowie that's from australia um sort of a imagine bigfoot but lives in in uh, rivers in and around rivers Although That's they used to have the, 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 uh, the chocolate egg, the yaoi was oh, yeah. uh, far more, far more appealing. I'd say, because it was, it was like a kinder surprise, but it had little toy Australian animals in it. Always quite cool. Haven't um, you guys got enough, uh, cryptids down there with, with you all out looking for phylocenes that were extinct? Like, <laughs> well, I know you got, you got the yaoi, you got the bunyip, you've got bunyip. Okay. Oh, the bunyip is very similar as well. Um, anyway, we've got Karen Coon Wright has written The Jersey Devil. I'm assuming from um, oh, hang on. Jesus, the bunyip is vicious looking, <laughs> <laughs> it's like a zombie hyena, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's never really one description of them. Um, so like I say, Karen Coon Wright has put The Jersey Devil, which I'm assuming is from up and around New Jersey Way in uh, America, and yep. Total Conquest Crosser has put the jackalope. Which, yeah, I'm familiar with the jackalope. Um, yeah, which was one of those fantastic sort of... Um, uh, it's like a rabbit taxidermy. with antlers, isn't it? Yeah, like taxidermy sort of farces that came out of the, the 19th century where people would just stitch bits together to make um, weird creatures. So mm. yes, I, I believe you can go and buy jackalopes and things like that. Obviously, it's a dead stuffed rabbit with antlers, uh, or, sorry, horns stuck to it. But yeah, some good good ones there. We've had some interesting combinations. Um, uh, as for this week's question, we are basing it off, um, well, you know, my rather subtle uh, appreciation of plants. It's, you may not have noticed, Aaron, uh, but I do like plants. Yes. Um, there, there's, a, there's a definite undertone there. You, you have to dig quite a bit to find it, but uh, it's yeah. definitely there. Um, so our question is, Simply, what's your favorite plant and why? Mine, I, I find that hard to to answer, but I'm gonna go with um, I'm gonna go with the Tasmanian tree fern because I've been singing its praises whole episode. They're so ancient looking. They are ancient, and they are themselves a basis for other plants to grow onto as well. So epiphytes can grow up the side of them, uh, even when they're dead. Aaron, what about you? What's your favorite plant? I know you've got quite a few house plants uh, in your house. There's one I can see directly behind you at the moment. Mm. What are you? Uh, what are you going for? Um, I quite like. Um, well, I think I've got. I think I've got a couple. Um, so the, oh, the first one is I. I like tree ferns because it's. Um, 
because uh, you're copying me. Because I like them. Um, I don't really have many other reasons other than the fact that I find it cool that, that they're prehistoric, you know. Um, the other one I like is uh, they're kind, kind of biased, really. Um, I have a bonsai upstairs, which is mine. It's the only plant in this house that's that's mine. Uh. Um, and uh, I do, I am quite fond of that one, although I don't give it much attention. Bonsai uh, of what? Uh, I'm not going to lie, Gareth, I don't know. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, like I say, I don't give it much attention. Um, by, by the time the next episode uh, is recorded, I will give you the name. Uh, but also, uh, I remember when I um, when I lived in Barcelona, there was a there was a big there was a lemon tree on my balcony, um, and I managed to grow one single lemon on it in the time yeah. I was out there, um, and it was a nice big juicy one. And when I moved back to uh, to Devon, I I I decided before I went, I would pluck it. I'd leave the tree there because I had no way of bringing it back. I'd pluck it, and it would be my first pancakes I'd make back on 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 devon soil uh i would use that lemon for it and i did and it was the best thing ever so now i uh i quite more importantly quite did you lemon keep trees. i did not keep the seeds because at that time i wasn't really interested in in plants so much as i i am now uh, you should have kept the seeds and grown a new one and yep. you know yeah, yeah. should have done yeah right well you uh, you can certainly get in contact with us through our various different uh, means of communication, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, uh, or um, Instagram, where we'll be putting up that question for you guys to answer uh, in the same vein as, well, hopefully we got from uh, from this week's question. That was quite a nice amount of people giving us their yeah. cryptids from around the world. So let us know what your favorite plant is from anywhere in the world. Um, it may even be one that you don't have. It may be one that you just really like the look of. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can do so, like I say, by responding to us uh, on all of those different platforms, which now brings me to the point in the episode where I get to talk about the many ways that you can help us out. Uh, the first is what these wonderful people uh, have done, um, which is joining our Patreon. By supporting us on Patreon, you're helping us to make the podcast better and expand uh, and expand how we do things as well to uh, to really uh, help grow it. So a big thank you to the following people. Okay, I'm going to read them out in a in a creepy way because we're into October now and uh, it's Halloween soon. So um, we will go with Foktober, Jennifer Greenhall, Connie P, Chelsea McKee, Jen Greenhall. Well, there you go. <laughs> Aaron doing that because it's going to be Halloween soon. Uh, <laughs> um, but money isn't everything. Um, and you can also help us out uh, in the simplest way possible uh, by liking, subscribing, leaving a review for us on whatever podcasting service you're listening to us on, uh, or telling a friend, telling an enemy, going into a deep, dark valley full of tree ferns and just whispering it into the... Uh, the quietness into the ether. Then catch on the trees yes <laughs> but um both of these ways are a really good way of helping the podcast out uh, and helping us to grow from where we started to where we are now and where we hope to be in the future so a big thank you um from myself and aaron to everyone who has helped us out in either of those ways uh, as as uh, we go on and that pretty much brings us to the end of the episode aaron Big thank you for coming along. 
Uh, thank you for having me. It's been uh, fantastic. Uh, I like learning about tree ferns. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I will. I, I do feel better now. I'm just a little bit nasally at the moment. Uh, and I'm, tired, I'm there, very tired. I'm there with you, yeah. Well, yeah, tree ferns, I mean, like I say, I could keep talking about them quite a while, but um, I might just go and check them. <laughs> just to be sure. <laughs> but yes, uh, and a big thank you to you at home for listening. And we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Goodbye. So, Gareth. Yes. You, uh, you've you been stalking the woods of uh, New Jersey. I mean, I, uh, you can't prove it. Were you clothed? <laughs> I hope so. Are you calling me a Jersey devil? I might be. <laughs>